The Bible is true, and the God of the Bible is true, and we know the end of the story. I throw that out to you because you may ask questions. When you study prophecy, you may ask the so what question, and every Bible teacher has been taught to ask so what. After, when you're approaching a Bible study, and some of you are Bible teachers or you teach Sunday school, you should ask that question, so what? So what does this mean? Is there an application? And by the way, when you come into church on a Sunday, um, you know, I know there's all different levels of people who come into church on Sundays and Wednesdays. There's people who know a few Bible verses and people who have been studying the Bible for decades. But one thing that you should be asking when you leave on a Wednesday or a Sunday is, was I taught the Word of God? Did I receive the Word of God today? Whether it made me happy, <laughs> whether it challenged me or shook me to the core, was I taught the Word of God? Do I know more about the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Not necessarily did I like it. <laughs> I hope you enjoy being here. Don't get me wrong. I don't want you to walk out like Eeyore every Wednesday and Sunday. Not much of a Christian. <laughs> we don't want that, right? But some parts of the Bible are challenging and hard. And the big question is, was I taught the word of God? And then is it my heart to apply it? The book of Daniel from chapter 2, verse 4, from the, to the end of chapter 7, verse 28, has been in Aramaic. We now switch back to Hebrew. That's a side point, but you may be interested in that because I told you from chapter 2, we've moved from Hebrew to Aramaic, and then we're moving back to Hebrew. And the question is why? And some people argue because the rest of the book of Daniel is for the Jewish people in the sense that they're the main uh, target or audience or uh, subject. And so Israel is at the heart of this throughout the ages and into the end times. Antiochus Epiphanes, which uh, I will get to as we move about midway through the chapter, foreshadows a coming Antichrist in the future. And there's going to be some intriguing similarities between a man that did stuff before Jesus was born and he ruled from about 175 to 164, 63 B.C. to a coming world leader who will have very many similarities. This is why I've entitled this Prophecy or a prophetic preview, because you're going to see prophecy that moves down uh, almost to the time of Christ, but then foreshadows the Antichrist. And so it's kind of a dual-level prophecy or a prophetic preview. It's prophecy plus a preview. So that's why I've given you that title, and I think hopefully that will become more clear as we move on. As the book of Daniel challenges us to be a Daniel one of the questions that we should have in our minds is, if I was challenged with the same kind of difficult, dark times, would I, would I be able to stand? Am I prepared to make a stand in difficult days? The church is facing difficult days, as you know, and uh, they're getting more and more challenging. And with that, the church has to ask some deeper questions about why am I a Christian? What am I really living for? And so uh, this is an important aspect of our Christian life that we need to definitely consider. And so as uh, history is going to unfold before us and some major world powers, um, that this is what we're going to study tonight, a prophetic preview. This is verse one. It says, in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, we met him in chapter five. He was the king with the writing on the wall. So this is a, uh, the third year of his reign of Belshazzar the king, verse 1, Daniel 8. A vision appeared to me, Daniel, who's our author. There may be people who say Daniel wasn't the author and there's somebody writing under Daniel's name later. No, Daniel is our author. Daniel's having the dreams. Daniel's having the visions. He said he got this vision, says Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. The one that appeared to him previously is chapter 7, verse 1. And we saw... Uh, that prophecy, if you just peek back for a second, it says, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw dream, a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. That's the first year of Belshazzar. Flip over to chapter 8, verse 1. You've got the third year of the reign of Belshazzar. Now, we know Babylon ended with his reign, 
And so from the time of this vision in 551 B.C., for those of you who are interested in dates, and I think it's important that you have some of these dates down, Babylon falls in 539 B.C. Twelve years from this prophecy, Babylon, the head of gold, Daniel 2, is no more. And so Babylon doesn't really get mentioned much here because Daniel, uh, Babylon is waning in its uh, presence in world history at this point. It'll be just a dozen years and Babylon will pass off the stage. And so this, uh, oftentimes when you're reading your Bible and you may be a little con confused because you say I'm in chapter 7, but what, how could chapter 7 be before chapter 5? Because the Bible's not always in chronological order. The Bible often unfolds in thematic order. What do you mean, Pastor Michael? I mean sometimes the Bible unfolds in themes and not chronological order, just that simply. So you can move ahead a chapter in some books and you're actually looking at something that may have happened before. And that's just simply something to know so you don't get confused when you study your Bible. So Daniel talks about this vision. He had mentioned a dream in chapter 7, verse 1. Now he's got, he's mentioning a vision. The third year of the reign of Belshazzar allows us to have the historic date. And as I mentioned Safely, you can write 551 B.C. And I looked in the vision, verse 2, and it came about while I was looking that I was in the citadel of Susa. If you have the King James or New King James, it's called Shushan. Most of the modern translations have it as Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Uli Canal. Now, in the province of Elam is where he finds himself in this area of Susa. This area, by the way, is not a prominent area at this moment of history. This would almost be like if someone had a vision of Washington, D.C. in 1576. Hundreds of years before Washington, D.C. was ever the capital of a place called the United States. This is what we're looking at. Susa actually becomes the capital of the Persian Empire after Medo-Persian uh, Persia arises and then Persia takes dominance. And this is an area of the world that's mentioned in Nehemiah 1.1 and Esther 1.2, eventually becoming the capital of the Persian Empire. Uh, remember that Daniel's having some sort of vision and so he has the vision, and he is all of a sudden at this location. Where is he really? 200, 250 miles away in Babylon. Was he transported near the canal? Was he just taken there in the spirit? I think we would be safe to say, just like John the Revelator, the book of Revelation, he's on the island of Patmos, but he's taken to a high mountain in Revelation, I think it's 20 or 21. He's taken to the wilderness in Revelation 17, 1, where he sees the woman riding the beast. And so when Revelation comes, someone can be taken to a place in the world, if you will, where they're seeing things, but their body isn't necessarily there. And so you can wrestle with this. It's a minor point, but I don't know that he was transported there, but he's taken there in the spirit, if you will, to this place. And so this location the Uli Canal, most uh, historians and scholars believe, was a man-made canal that ran through or flowed through Susa. It was called Uleus in later classical writings, called Susa by the Greeks, the chief city of the Medo-Persian Empire, uh, about 250 miles east of Babylon. And so this is where we are now located. As we saw in chapter 7, Animals begin to appear before Daniel. They represent either kings or kingdoms or both. And we're introduced to another, as we saw in chapter 7. We're now introduced to a ram. I lifted my gaze and I looked. I looked and behold, verse 3, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, says Daniel, but one was longer than the other with the longer one coming up last. The Persian king, when he stood at the head of his army, bore instead of a diadem the head of a ram. This is very significant for the Persian Empire. Daniel sees a ram in verse 3 with two horns, 
Remember, a horn in the Bible represents strength. Here, specifically, a kingdom or a king, as we've seen the horns show up in the book of Daniel and Revelation. The two horns represent the combination of a Medo-Persian empire. One horn is longer than the other because one kingdom will become more prominent than the other. The more, the more prominent kingdom will become Persia. By the way, Persia is now the name for modern-day Iran. And so that's the area of the world that we're dealing with. And so the Medes will be overshadowed by the Persians. This is what her world history bears out. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward. No other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and magnified himself. Now this is an incredible prophecy, Bible students, because it shows that this world empire begins to move in certain directions. It's located in the east, if you will, and it begins to move westward, northward, and southward, which is exactly what happened. Persia was in the east. The Persians pushed westward, northward, and southward, but they did not go east. Um, the principal movement was west, north, and south, did not push into the Far East, as I mentioned, and Cyrus was the leader of the Persian Empire. I mentioned to you when Darius the Mede shows up, there are some scholars that believe it's another name for Cyrus, and it's a debatable point, but there are many good scholars that land there, and so Cyrus is an interesting man, and he led the Persian Empire and dominated much of the world. He was uh, he is pictured as this ram that's dominating. And so I want to show you a prophecy in the book of Isaiah. So hold your place in Daniel. You're going to go backwards a little bit. Go to Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah chapter 45. Now you all know that Daniel begins to unfold from about 605 B.C. into the 500s. And Daniel probably lived till he's about 90. So the book of Daniel is written about in that timeline. You could say in the 500s B.C. Anybody know when the book of Isaiah was written? About 700, somewhere in there, is most of the scholarship. How long is that before Daniel's time? At least 100 years, 150 years. How long is that before Persia and Greece become world empires? Pretty long time. Uh, the Persian ruler, of course, is dominating um, as history unfolds, but we're moving now you know, into the early 500s into the 400s. Isaiah is written in 700. Take a look. Isaiah 45, verse 1. Isaiah 45, verse 1. The Lord says to who? To Cyrus, his anointed, whom I've taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him, loose the loins of kings to open doors before him or to open double doors before him, New King James, so the gates will not shut. By the way, when um, Cyrus took down Babylon, he had to go through double doors, which were part of the gates of Babylon's defensive moat. They were not shut when Cyrus captured Babylon. Uh, by the way, God named Cyrus in a prophecy in Isaiah 45.1, hundreds of years before he's ever born. Can you imagine? You become the Persian leader, Somebody says, hey, you ever read the Bible before, Cyrus? There's a chapter about you. <laughs> Where? Where is it? I'd like to know. It's Isaiah 45. God calls you by name. Can you imagine that? Now, some people have thought that their name was in the Bible. These have been people in history that have been a little bit off. In fact, I will tell you that the founder of Mormonism, Joseph Smith, wrote his own chapter in his version of the Bible. I guess it's convenient when you can write your own chapter about yourself in a, a book that you call the Bible. But if you add to the Word of God or take away from it, what happens to you? You're in deep trouble. Joseph Smith did that. Mormons need to know that. Joseph Smith wrote his own chapter in his so-called Joseph Smith translation, and that doesn't fly. And he, he's, he's already stood before God and had to give an account for that. And so I will go before you, says the Lord, and make 
the rough place is smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze. Most believe a reference to the Babylon, 100 gates of bronze in Babylon. Cut through their iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places in order that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. The treasures of darkness is an allusion to the fabled wealth of Sardis captured by Cyrus in 546 B.C. Cyrus did not know the Lord personally, but he understood that the Lord had appointed him, used him as a vessel, and even calls him by name before he was ever born. But notice, Bible students, for the sake of who? Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by your name, and I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other I am the one that forms light, creates darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Very fitting that the Lord would say this in light of Israel's great times of trial. Who was behind them? Who used Babylon to discipline his people? God. Who used Cyrus? By the way, when Cyrus, if you turn back to the book of Daniel, took uh, people's captive because he dominated the world... He was relatively kind to them, and he is the one behind allowing the Jews to go back and rebuild their temple. In fact, he gives them the vessels that Nebuchadnezzar took to go back to uh, uh, Israel, to Jerusalem specifically. And so Persia is prophesied about. Do you guys understand how significant this is? Your Bible has just predicted things hundreds and hundreds of years in advance. World empires, leaders by name. Do you know of any other book on the planet that does that? There are none. This is it. And this is how we know that the Bible is the word of God. It's one of the ways that we know. Now we're going to move from the ram to the shaggy dog. Everybody look at verse 5. Oh no, it says, I'm sorry, it's a shaggy goat. I was thinking of a movie. Wasn't there a movie? Anyway. While I was observing verse 5, behold, a male goat or a shaggy goat, verse 21, we'll, we'll look at that in a moment, was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous, conspicuous or prominent or notable horn between his eyes. Now, if you skip down to verse 20, verse 20, and you may say, Pastor Michael, you confidently make these assertions about who you think these world empires, it's just a ram and it's a goat and a shaggy one at that. What in the world? How do people know who these are? Well, look at verse 20 of the same chapter. The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. And the shaggy dog, goat <laughs> represents who? The kingdom of Greece. Now, do you guys see why Liberal scholars can't handle that the book of Daniel could be written in the 500s, moving into close to 600. Because when does Greece dominate the world? I think Alexander the Great, it's in the 330s BC. How can Daniel have this information? He's a, he's a Jewish man as a captive in Babylon. Where does he know this kind of stuff, unless he is getting revelation from the God of heaven who's outside of time and who controls history because history is his story. Do you believe that? I don't think I have to be terribly convinced other than to try to use slippery gymnastics or hermeneutical gymnastics or to try to redate the book because if I don't believe in miracles, then I have to redate this book because this is predicting history in advance. This is talking about the Medo-Persian and Grecian Empire before they ever really either exist or dominate. How can that be? Because the Bible is divine. All scripture is what? It's inspired by God and it's profitable. So the shaggy goat was coming from the west, from the west, 
comes a one that looks like he didn't even touch the ground. Moved so quickly, dominated so rapidly. Who's that, Bible students? It's Greece. Alexander the Great. He watched, Daniel watched a powerful ram, another animal representing a kingdom, a male goat from the west, over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. He's the first king, Daniel 8.21. Alexander the Great quickly conquered the known world. It seemed like his feet didn't even touch the ground, says one writer. Alexander launched his attack against Persia in 334 B.C. By 332 B.C., he had essentially subdued the Persian Empire. Under Xerxes, Persia uh, intended to move west, but from the west came this fast-moving goat. Alexander, the great son of Philip, king of Macedon, founder of the Hellenistic Empire. Born in 356 B.C., ascended the Macedonian throne in 336 B.C., so he's very young, advised by his teacher Aristotle that he could rule the world if he could make people adopt the Greek culture. Alexander extended the empire east from Greece, around the Mediterranean Sea to Egypt, then to the borders of India. He died in 323 B.C. at the age of 33. Some say after all-night drinking binge, some say in an attempt to rebuild Babylon against God's will, uh, maybe both. And so his kingdom came to a quick end. And I've told you before that they, there are stories of Alexander beating on his bed because he had no more kingdoms to conquer. And so he was, he was sad. What am I going to do now? Right? That was Alexander the Great. Your Bible is telling you world history. Or world history is catching up to your Bible. This is really how we should look at it. And so... Alexander um, the Great encouraged the Jews to settle in a place called Alexandria. Alexandria, Egypt, is where we know the writing of the Septuagint happened. The Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament completed about 250 B.C. Alexander the Great brought a common language to the known world called Koine Greek or Common Greek. What's the New Testament written in? You're new to the Bible and you hear Pastor Michael say, and the Greek word is, and you're like, why is he telling us Greek words? Who cares? It's all Greek to me anyway. Because everything, haven't you seen my big fat Greek wedding? Everything comes from the Greek. (laughs) And the Lord used Alexander the Great to bring a common language. Do you remember in the book of Acts in chapter 6, Uh, Verse 1, there's a fight between the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews. Do you know how that happened? Because many Jews, when Alexander began to dominate the known world, embraced Hellenism. What is Hellenism, you ask? It is Greek culture and all that goes with it. The Greek language, the Greek religion, Greek philosophy, and the like. God used a time in history where the Greeks brought in a common language and the Romans began to build as they dominated the world because you move from Greece to Rome in world empires. They began to build Rome. uh, Rome began to build bridges and roads to lead all over the known world, which allowed for what? You get the Apostle Paul saved, who, by the way, is trained in Jewish rabbinic schools, but he also speaks Greek. And Paul gets a knapsack, gets saved, and begins to travel the known Roman world to preach what? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Goes goes all over the Roman world. How does he do that? Because roads and bridges were developed by Rome. And Rome ruled with an iron fist, but they had something called the Pax Romana, uh, which which meant they enforced, it was peace by force, peace with an iron fist. And in that world, The Apostle Paul and others go and they begin to preach the gospel. And that's, by the way, the seeds of how the gospel ends up on the American shores and really anywhere else in the world. It's because early missionaries began to spread the gospel and take the Great Commission seriously. And so he came up, verse 6, Daniel 8, to the ram that had the two horns, the Medo-Persian Empire, this goat, with the one horn, the horn, the one horn is Alexander, dominant world ruler, which I had seen standing in front of the canal. 
and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. He was an angry goat. (laughs) And I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. Now remember, Daniel's having a vision. So he hurled him to the ground, trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. As Daniel sees the animals kind of cross the screen, if you will, he sees this goat, this shaggy goat, this next world empire, take the ram with the two horns and begin to throw it to the ground and beat it into a pulp. And, you know, if you're having a dream like this, you're like, whoa, Daniel's got to be a bit rocked. And it's a picture of Greece defeating the Medo-Persian Empire. He hurls it to the ground. The ram, he shattered its two horns. The ram had no strength to withstand him. He hurled him to the ground, trampled him down. None to rescue. And then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, remember when Alexander dominated the world, it was quick and he was young. As soon as he was mighty, the large horn Alexander here was broken. And in its place, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Now, if you've been with us for a while, or if you've studied this, you know that when Alexander died, he had no male heirs. No male heir. And so, because of that, his four generals divided up his kingdom because they weren't as strong as him. By the way, Alexander had two sons, both of which were murdered. Because when dad died, there was no one to protect the sons. And if you were looking for power and influence, what did you do in the ancient world? You killed someone who could get the throne so you could get it for yourself. And since Alexander died potentially in a drinking binge, he wasn't there to protect his kids and others vying for power killed his children. And this is a lesson to us about, you know, we we make decisions, uh, I'm going to do this and that, and, you know, for, for Alexander, apparently it was alcohol, an all-night binge that cost him his life. What broke the large horn? Well, Alexander really broke himself. He wasn't really de- defeated by an army. He was defeated by his flesh. How many families do you know? How many individuals do you know? It wasn't an army. It wasn't though someone did it to them. They did it to themselves. Sadly, in a broken world, right? Where some of us standing here tonight, sitting here tonight, are grateful that we're still here. Amen? Some of you can relate to this. I had, I had a couple moments in my BC days when I was amazed that I am still on the planet. Or some of my friends. But we won't go there tonight. <laughs> Look at the United States. Will immorality take the U.S. down? What's what's our major battles right now? A lot of them are moral issues, right? Well, Alexander began to dominate the world. He brought Koine Greek. Rome brought the roads, the bridges, the Pax Romana. And God used it all because God is sovereign over history. Now we're going to be introduced to something interesting called the man of intrigue. Look at verse 9. And out of one of them, one of the four, the generals, came forth a rather small or a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful or glorious land. That's the land of Israel. After Alexander's death, his kingdom was divided, as I mentioned. This horn, by the way, is not the same as the little horn of chapter 7. There is a prophetic far fulfillment, which we'll talk about, but the horn of chapter 7 comes from the fourth beast empire, which is Rome. And just so we're clear, there's many who believe that the fourth empire will have another future aspect to it, a revived Roman empire, if you will, the ten toes. I've explained that to you. So you just don't get confused that it ends with Rome. There's a future uh, dimension of that final beast empire or kingdom. Whether it's a revived Roman empire, I don't know, but it'll have, it's a composite or there'll be elements of all these kingdoms which we saw in Revelation 13 as we studied. 
So this is not the same horn as the previous chapter. It's a small horn coming out from Greece, from one of the four that came from the one main one, Alexander. And indeed, world history does tell us that after the sudden death of Alexander, the kingdoms divided among four generals, Ptolemy, Seleucus, Lysimachus, and Cassander. When you guys hear Ptolemy, you can think of the Ptolemaic Empire, which is Egypt to the south, and the Seleucid dynasty is Syria to the north. Now, if you ever get a chance to take a trip to Israel and you get a guide that wants to tell you about the history of the land, they will tell you that here's what happened. Because Israel was in between Syria to the north and Egypt to the south, and there's this strip of land here, uh, oftentimes Syria would be at war with Egypt. And so because Israel was in between two warring factions, or at this point you could say warring generals, war would invade the land of Israel not because they always wanted it, but because they were in between two enemies. You could say they were in between a rock and a hard place. And when you study Isaiah and some of the other Old Testament books, you'll find that Israel often found itself in a situation where it didn't know who to give its allegiance to. Should we side with Egypt? Should we side with Syria? We don't know. And so there were Jews that went both ways. Some sided with Egypt, the Ptolemaic Empire, because they had more freedom to practice their religion. Some sided with the Syrian Empire, which was an offshoot of the Grecian Empire, which was Hellenistic, which was anti-Jewish. In other words, you would be less free to practice your religion if you embraced the Seleucid way or the Grecian way because you would be embracing Hellenism or Western ideas, if you will. And by virtue of that, you would be more restricted in practicing your religion. Antiochus Epiphanes, because he came from this, Antiochus Epiphanes, because he came from the Hellenistic backdrop, uh, decided that he was going to push Hellenistic ways. And the people of Israel found themselves right in the middle. The little horn is Antiochus Epiphanes. He rules from 175 to 164. He surnamed himself Epiphanes, which means God manifests. We have found this on coins in the ancient world that have actually been discovered that this is what he called himself. But his enemies called him Epimenes, which means Antiochus the madman. And he was mad. In fact, he, he went mad and died in 163 in Syria, and he went cuckoo. Uh, but let me tell you a little about, about what, he, what he was about. He was one of the cruelest rulers of all time. Like his father, Antiochus III the Great, he was enterprising and ambitious, but he was cruel. A conflict uh, is recorded in the book of 2 Maccabees. Now, those of you who know that there's extra books in the Catholic Bible... There's 1st and 2nd Maccabees in the Catholic Bible. Those are not canonical books. What do you mean, Pastor Michael? I mean, they're not part of the canon of Scripture. But they are historical books. In the case of 1st and 2nd Maccabees, they give accurate history, but are non-canonical. What do you mean? I mean, they're not part of the canon. They're not inspired books. But they are still valuable for their historical content. Everybody with me? The story of this time period, the intertestamental time period, but from the time of Malachi, or if you're Italian, Malachi, <laughs> to the time of Matthew, what do we have in between? About 400 years, right? We call it the intertestamental period. This is what we're talking about. That period, that 400 years. And within that period, the books of 1st and 2nd Maccabees, among others, were written to record what happened during this time. And let me summarize. Antiochus Epiphanes had um, launched a successful military campaign against Egypt. He returned home in the year 168 BC. He went down to Egypt a second time with the purpose of uh, this expedition to, be consol to consolidate his power and victory over Egypt and put it under Syrian domination. But history records that on this occasion he was met by the Senate in Rome, who at this time, as an expanding military power, opposed Syria's conquest of Egypt. You can think of modern warfare where this happens all the time with nations in the U.S. getting involved in military conflict and the like. So Rome offered the choice to Antiochus to break off his attack against Egypt or to face war with Rome. 
Antiochus did not want to fight against Rome. They were a, you know, a rising world power. So Antiochus said, no, thank you. He turned tail. And as he was going back home from Egypt, what land did he have to cross through? Israel. And as he moved from Egypt in the south and started going back home, he, start, he decided he would stop in the beautiful land and take his, <laughs> I didn't get to conquer Egypt, against who? Israel. And Israel all of a sudden had to face a mad, mad man who threatened by Rome had to turn tail and could not consolidate his power after a victory over Egypt. He was mad and he took his anger out on the people of Israel. Storming into Jerusalem, Antiochus Epiphanes had an image of his chief god, Zeus Olympus. Uh, significantly, as will be seen, the heathen deity was fashioned as a man with the face of Antiochus himself put on it. He carried it into the temple in Jerusalem, into the Holy of Holies. He then demanded that the people bow down and worship him as a god. What do you think most of the Jews did? They refused him. And so they didn't want the heathen statue in the Holy of Holies. They didn't want this man doing what he was doing. And history records as they tried to withstand him and his army, 80,000 people were slain. This is world history I'm giving you folks. This is what happened. This is what's happened over and over, sadly, to the people of Israel. And so Antiochus, with his terrible ways, began to try to assimilate the Jewish people into Hellenism or the Syrian ways. He would not allow them to circumcise their children. He took Torah scrolls from them and burned them. He would not allow them to practice their kosher diet. He said, you're going to convert to the Greek or the Syrian way or you're going to die. And it was a brutal time for the people of Israel. And in this time, this may sound familiar to you, under the godly priest Mattathias and his five sons, the third known as Judas Maccabeus, hence the books of First and Second Maccabees. Judas Maccabeus was known as Judah the Hammer. In guerrilla-style warfare, they began to fight against the Syrian forces. And they began to win. And as they practiced more and more guerrilla warfare and battled and battled and battled some more, they gained momentum. And the people of Israel united to overthrow the Seleucid domination of their land. The Syrian armies were routed. The temple was cleansed on the 25th of Chislev, 165 B.C., which is our December. Now, on December 25th, the Jews have a holiday that they celebrate called the Feast of Hanukkah. It's known as the Feast of Dedication or the Feast of Lights. And what it commemorates is the guerrilla warfare of this, these five brothers who rallied the people against Syrian forces, cleansed the temple because Antiochus Epiphany slaughtered a pig unclean in the Holy of Holies to further make a mockery of the Jewish religion. And they, they beat him, they cleansed the temple and rededicated it, and the oil was running out. There wasn't enough oil, but the oil lasted how many days? It was supposed to last, I think, a couple days. It lasted eight days. Hence the eight days of Hanukkah and the celebration of the Jewish Feast of Dedication. By the way, the Feast of Hanukkah is mentioned one time in the Bible outside of this context, and it's found in John 10.22, and I'll take you there when we get to the end. And so this terrible leader grew up, verse 10, to the host of heaven, and I'm gonna have to move quickly, I'm gonna run out of time, and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth. The stars represent the Jewish people, your Descendants will be as the stars of the sky here and trampled them down. Of course, many Jews were killed as they tried to withstand and fight against this invasion. It even magnified itself, did Antiochus to be equal with the commander of the hosts. It removed the regular sacrifice from him, wouldn't allow sacrifice in the temple, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. He, he slaughtered the pig there. He exalted himself against the prince of the host. He 
uh, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away. This is all Antiochus Epiphanes. And the place of his sanctuary was cast down. He caused what we're going to see later in the book of Daniel and mentioned in Matthew 24, 15, the abomination that makes desolate or the abomination of desolation. We'll talk more about that. Because he desecrated the holy place and it had to be cleansed and rededicated on the Feast of Hanukkah. And this is what this chapter is all about. Under probably what I would believe is demonic power, Antiochus did these terrible things, but finally was defeated by a godly family who rallied the people of God. And on account of transgression 12, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice. And it, this one who raised up Antiochus, will fling truth to the ground and perform uh, its will and prosper. For a time he did prosper. He threw truth to the ground. If you had a Torah scroll, he burned it. If you had a Bible... Everybody with me? There's modern application here. We want that burned. We, we don't want that to be around anymore. He flung truth to the ground. And he, as we look at a prophetic preview, becomes a picture of a future world leader because some close to 200 years later, Jesus would talk about a future abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. This is after these events. Everybody with me? So it can't be about Antiochus. There must be another world ruler that will arise that Antiochus becomes a foreshadowing of. Do you, everybody with me? The abomination of desolation that Jesus speaks of, Jesus is born after these events. So he must be speaking of another world ruler that will do something similar to what Antiochus did. And that world ruler will be the Antichrist. Truth will be illegal. Bible's illegal. You can't do this anymore. You can't do that anymore. But truth always wins out. Praise the Lord. Truth always wins out. Should I keep going? <laughs> you guys okay? Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said, to that particular one who was speaking, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? How long the holy place, the temple, the people trampled? How long is this horror going to go on? That's what I'd be asking. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. Then it'll be cleansed. Then it'll be Hanukkah, if you will. There's two views of 2,300 evenings and mornings. The evening and the morning is a Jewish expression that could fill one day. So the 2,300 days are uh, equaling, using 360-day years, they will be uh, a little over six years. The ones in, in this camp have a certain dating method. I'll tell you about that in a second. There's another view that cuts it in half with evening and mornings and has 1,150 1, days. So uh, let me give you the dates. What is the starting date? The six-year advocates who believe that these are 2,300 days begin with 171 B.C. when Antiochus deposed the true high priest. His name is, I think, Onias. And you go six years and you get to 165 B.C. and you get to the Feast of Hanukkah. There's another view um, that, oh, let's see. Oh, let me read, just read my notes here. The three years advocates begin with the establishment of the pagan altar on the 25th of Keslev, 168. This also takes us to 165 BC. So either approach, says Warren Wearsby, meets the requirements of the prophecy. Just depends on your starting date, but it still moves you to the feast of Hanukkah. Now I'll tell you what. In order to do this justice, I don't want to rush. I'm going to pause right here. Because I know I'm trying to rush, and it's just, I just don't want, don't want to do that. So, all right, everybody take a breath. Now, I told you that the value of this prophecy is that I'm going to, in next week's message, give you a list of comparables between Antiochus and a future world leader. And I'm going to give you about nine of them. And you're going to see some eerie similarities between what Antiochus did in the 160s BC 
and what this future world leader is supposed to do in a time future to us, in a time that many of you hope you will not be here. <laughs> Pre-trib rapture, please, 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 right? And depending on how God decides to unfold the times, here's what we know. I believe that Judas Maccabeus and his brothers are a type of whoever will be here in those days who will be able to take a stand against evil. And right now, let me just say this to you. We don't know when this will be. We don't know what generation it will be. But can I just encourage you? Do you think it's a time that we're going to have to take a stand? Do you think that we're going to have to be like Judas Maccabeus and his brothers? And I don't know what that's going to look like. But we are engaged in warfare. It may not be guerrilla warfare, but it's warfare nonetheless. Because we're supposed to put on what? The armor of God. We're supposed to put on the armor of light in a dark world. And so I, I find encouragement here for my own walk, what God's called me to be and to do. And I, I'll just confess it to you. I'm not always up for the challenge. <laughs> but I know that I am strong through the one who makes me strong. Amen? I, I rarely feel up to what God's called me to do, <laughs> just to be quite candid with you. But that's where God has me all. You know why that's good? Because it makes me have to rely on him. It makes me pray more and say, oh God, if you don't show up, nothing good's going to happen. Help. Right? Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is doing the right thing even when you're afraid. And God's not given you a spirit of fear. But what? Power, love, and a sound mind. There's so many times in the Bible when I see an angel or Jesus say, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. <laughs> but I'm afraid. <laughs> don't be afraid. But you're real shiny. Don't be afraid. <laughs> Lord, there certainly has to be somebody else for this job. Here's my prayer. Get somebody else. Lord, raise somebody up. Lord, raise somebody up. Lord, raise somebody up. And the Lord says, I've chosen you. What? what? Let me clean out my ears for a second. Who? Who did you say? You. I want you to stand. Lord, can I inform you on current events? I'm from the least of all the families in Corona. I don't, you, I don't know if you know any of my world history, but I acted like I was sick in oral report day. <laughs> I don't like talking in front of people. You know, whatever, whatever your thing is. And the Lord says, no, I've got exactly who I've called. I called you to be brave, to be strong, to be my man or woman in this time for such a time as this. You know, Daniel, when he walks away from these visions, he's going to say, I was shook up. I was afraid. That's natural. We were in a prayer meeting before. Some of you were in the prayer meeting, and we're talking about stress and anxiety. <laughs> Look, the Bible verses are there because God knows we get stressed out. God knows we get anxious. God knows there's things that make us afraid. So he gives us verses to stand on because we need them. Amen? So keep anchoring, anchoring yourself to the one who is greater than all of it. And he'll see you through. If you don't know him tonight, I'm not going to ask you to even bow your head. I'm just going to ask you. Just with the lights up, do you know him? Do you know the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Do you know the one whose kingdom will never end? The one who died on the cross for you and defeated death and made a way for you? If you don't know him, get to know him. You got to start by trusting him. You got to bring your fears, your questions, your concerns to the foot of the cross and say, Lord, save me just as I am. I'm coming. And then he'll do the work and he'll start to change you and renew your mind and call you and show you beauty 
that you've never seen before. But he's just going to ask you to come and start the process. So if you're not sure you're a Christian tonight, it's just something this simple. Lord Jesus, come into my life. I'm a sinner. I've sinned so many times. I've fallen short of your glory. Thank you that you took my sin and shame at the cross. You paid the price. You paid my ransom. You paid my debt. You so love me. It's mind-blowing. The king of the universe so loved you. The one who made the sun. Have you ever thought just about the sun? How much power it takes to make a sun? He loves you. He holds it all together. He sustains the universe by the word of his power, and he loves you and me. Amazing love. If you want to know who you are, maybe you've been confused about your identity. Maybe you've been wondering, who am I, and where is this journey of life taking me? If you want to know who you are, trust in the one who made you, and life will start to make sense. Father, for those who are here tonight, those who may hear this sermon later, I just pray that you'd be doing a work in our hearts. Remind us of how much we're loved. Whatever we face in our daily battles and a week that goes by, we reflect back on it. Whatever, wherever we may be tonight, whether we've come in here and it's, it's been a great week, uh, for those who have not met you but want to know you, for those who may have been running or been scared or whatever, I just pray that you would put faith and hope and confidence May you be their confidence, Lord. May you be their strength, their refuge. May you pour living water out on your people. Those who do know you and those who are fighting the good fight and hanging on and battling, may you give them a fresh infilling of your Holy Spirit tonight as they surrender and submit more and more to you. We just thank you that we're together. We have these precious moments. We don't want to let them pass us by. So however you need to respond tonight, the Lord is here. He's a prayer away. Reach out to him.